yet again open the scripture and dig deeply into this word. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have saved us from our sin, from your judgment, from the wrath of God that we deserve. Or what is there to be more thankful for than that? that having been justified by the blood of our Savior, we're saved from the wrath of God through Him. What an amazing reality. We are a blessed people, a people called out of darkness, a people whose eyes have been opened from blindness to light, a people transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, a people who are privileged with gathering together on the Lord's Day to get a foretaste of heaven, to worship, to sit under the Word of God, to pray, to partake of the various means of grace that You've laid out as a feast for our souls. And then even after that, we get to feast for our bodies, Lord, together as a church. And what a privilege it is just to be together and to worship our God. We are so unworthy to be able to come into Your presence. We're so unworthy to worship You. Our sin has gone over our heads. It is as high as the heavens. If You should mark iniquity, if You should count our sins against us, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with You that You may be feared. And our hearts rejoice in that. And even now as we open the Scripture, we are just so thankful for the Word of God. A book from heaven, a book that is infallible, authoritative, inspired. A book that is the very Word of God itself. And so as we open the Scripture, as we prepare to hear from our God, we pray that You would help us. Help me as I teach Your Word to Your people. Give me clarity of thought, fluidity of speech, quickness of mind, to clearly explain Your truth to Your people. And I pray that each of us would grasp the meaning of this passage, the practical and theological implications of this passage, that we would behold Your glory, love You more, and that You would use this text to transform our lives and conform us to Your will. And we pray these things for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And if you do not have a Bible, we have plenty of them up there at the front on the bookshelves. It is important uh, that you have a Bible with you. We take the Word of God seriously here. We work through it verse by verse, literally sometimes one verse at a time, and that's what we're going to do this morning. And it's important that you are able to see the truth for yourself as we walk through the Scripture. So 1 John chapter 2, and the passage that we're going to begin to look at this morning is verses 18 through 23. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. John wrote this book as a series of tests by which we can determine if we are really in the faith. By which we can determine if we are truly saved. By which we can know if we have eternal life or not. And as you know, there are three tests that John cycles through over and over again repeatedly in the book that will provide genuine sound assurance to the true believer. Those three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. And John has presented all three of those tests so far. In the opening four verses of chapter 1, John began with the doctrinal test, the Christological test. The true Christian believes the truth about Jesus. That's where it begins. A Christian is fundamentally someone who believes in the true Christ. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the Christ. So John began by asserting 
both the eternal deity of Christ as well as the historical humanity of Christ. That is to say, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is that which is from the beginning, and He's that which was manifested to us. God incarnate, God in human flesh. And the true Christian believes that. He believes that. And then starting in verse 5, and going all the way to verse 17 of chapter 2, John began to present both the moral test and the social test together. The moral and the social test. In verse 5, we saw that the true Christian walks not in the darkness of sin, but in the light of holiness and truth. We see that the true Christian obeys God's commandments. The true Christian loves the brethren. And as we saw last time in verses 15 to 17, the true Christian does not love the world. He rejects this evil world system ruled by Satan and all that it entails. But now, starting in verse 18, John begins to recycle through these tests yet again. I told you that if you're bored in the first chapter and a half, you might as well leave because you're just going to get the same thing over and over again. John is so relentless in this. This is cyclical. This is circular. John just keeps coming back and back with the same stuff. And we're tempted to say, you know what, we've heard that. We're good. We can move on now. But we need to be often stirred up by way of reminder because we are people that need to be constantly reminded about the reality of true and false conversion. So John recycles through these tests. This is the beginning of cycle 2 here in verse 18. And he yet again begins with the doctrinal test, the test of Christology. In verses 15 to 17, John exposed those who are opposed to God. And now he's going to do that very specifically in verses 18 to 23. If you love the world, you're opposed to God. And here are the ones who John specifically has in mind, namely the Gnostic heretics. Let's read these verses together. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. There is a word there that may have stuck out to you. It's a word that is well known and and even obsessed over in the world of Christendom today. And it's the word Antichrist. Antichrist. It's used three times in these six verses because that's what the passage is about. It's about Antichrist. And if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've no doubt heard this term. This is a term that's very popular, very, it's a topic of great interest, great controversy today. People are always trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And perhaps many will spend the next four to eight years thinking that Joe Biden is the Antichrist. That's kind of the world in which we live. Whoever's the popular guy running the show, he must be the Antichrist, people think. But in any case, this is a topic that piques the interest of many. Who is the Antichrist? And just to kind of spoil the end of it, I think I know the answer to that, by the way. That might shock you, but we'll get there 
in, uh, when we get there. But it's interesting to note here that the word Antichrist is only used five times in the New Testament. Five times in the New Testament. It's used three times here, once in 1 John 4 and then once in 2 John verse 7. All five times it's used by the Apostle John in his epistles. And despite the rare usage of the word, it's a huge topic of debate. It's a topic of much guesstimation, much, much fanciful imagination, imagination, much thought is given to who the Antichrist is. Now what you need to notice here is that the word's used three times in these verses. It's used twice in the singular and once in the plural. Twice in the singular and once in the plural. So though there is a final, I'm convinced, final singular Antichrist to come, yet there are already many Antichrists that have already appeared. We get so caught up on the singular that we forget about the plural. There are many that already exist. Right now, at this moment, there is a plethora of Antichrist all around us. So our focus should be primarily not on who the final Antichrist is, but on who the Antichrist are that are already around us today. We're so focused on this final guy that we forget that we are sitting next to Antichrist at work. We're sitting next to Antichrist at our schools. We're sitting next to Antichrist often at Thanksgiving dinner, unfortunately. right? So there is our focus should be there on who the Antichrist are now. So what is an Antichrist? What is an Antichrist? The word Antichristos basically has two possible meanings. The word Christos obviously is Christ, Messiah. The word anti could either mean against or in the place of. Against or in the place of. So an antichrist is either someone who is against Christ, opposed to Christ, or someone who seeks to take the place of Christ. It can be a false Messiah, a false Christ, someone who comes and says, I am the Messiah, though he's not, or just someone in general who is in opposition to him. So in reality, in that that sense, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Christians and antichrists. Believers and unbelievers. Those who follow after Jesus and those who are opposed to Jesus. There is no middle ground. Right? What did Jesus say? You're either for me or what? Against me. me. If you're either Christian or anti-Christ, there is no in-between. People who say they have good ideas about Jesus, good thoughts about Jesus, but aren't followers of Jesus, in reality, according to the Scripture, they hate Jesus and they are anti-Christ. So anyone who's not a Christian, anyone who's not a true believer, in one sense, is an antichrist. But John specifically has in mind false teachers, and even more specifically, the Gnostic heretics who are seeking to deceive the Christian faithful. But even in our day, even at this moment, there are antichrists all around us. And it is essential that each of us in this room this morning are able to determine and overcome those antichrists. It's essential that you be able to identify and overcome these antichrists. But how do we do that? How do we know if someone's an antichrist? How do we know how to overcome and defeat an antichrist? John's going to help us with that this morning. Because in this passage, in these six verses, he provides us four features concerning antichrist. Four features of antichrist that will give us an idea of who they are. We see the timing of antichrist. We see the defection of Antichrist, the help against Antichrist, and finally, we see the definition of Antichrist. So we'll look at the first one this morning, and we'll look at the other three next time. So first we see the timing of Antichrist. The timing. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. 
Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Again, John begins with a term of endearment, a term of love, children. You can just hear his pastoral, fatherly, parental affection for them. John has a deep love for those to whom he writes, a deep love for those under his care, and therefore, out of his love, he warns them. He warns them. You need to note this. Any pastor, any shepherd who loves his flock, who loves those under his care, he is going to warn them of false teaching. You need to stay away from any supposed preacher and teacher who isn't warning about false teachers. That's why there's such a constant uh, apologetic, polemical thrust to my preaching. That's why I'm so often exposing heretical notions and heretical teachers because I care deeply for you and I want you to be able to distinguish between that which is true and that which is erroneous. And that's what it, the way it was with John. Out of his deep love for his flock, he warns them about these false teachers. And he says, children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. Have you ever heard someone say, I think we're living in the end times? I think we're living in the last days. Guess what? They're right. They're right. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Did you know that? By that, they think that that means Jesus is coming back tomorrow. That's not necessarily the case. John wrote this 2,000 years ago, probably at the end of the first century or so, and even in his day, he said it is the last hour. Literally in the Greek, eschatos hurrah. Eschatos hurrah. This is where we get into what theologians call eschatology. It's not a very fun topic for me, I don't think. It's a very confusing topic in a lot of ways. It's uh, the topic where we get into Revelation and things like that. But it comes from that word eschatos. It just means last or end. Eschatology is the study of last things, the study of end times. And obviously it would include futuristic Bible prophecy, life after death, the second coming, and so forth. But the eschaton is not just something we're waiting on. The last days aren't just something we're merely waiting to happen. They're already here. We're already in the eschaton. We're already in the end times. We're already in the last days and have been for some 2,000 years. Turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. That's the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1 ends with our Lord ascending to heaven. And Acts 2 begins with the apostles there waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, and I want to start reading for you in verse 1. Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, 
Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya and Cyrene, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God, prophesying. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they're all full of sweet wine. What a glorious event. We have the disciples there in Jerusalem waiting, and the Spirit of God comes. The promise comes, and He comes with great visible signs, the sign of tongues and other languages. And the people thought, you know, these guys are just drunk. I know it's 9 a.m., and most drunks don't get drunk at 9 a.m., but these guys must just be drunk. But then in verse 14, Peter is going to preach a sermon to them. And in that sermon, he explains the phenomena to them. Look at verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And now he's going to quote from Joel chapter 2. And he's going to say that what's happening on Pentecost is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Look at verse 17. And it shall be in the last days. In what days? The last days. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of My Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. That already happened. When did it happen? At Pentecost. At Pentecost, Peter says this is that. This is exactly what Joel said was going to happen in the last days. They're here. The Spirit of God has come. We're in the last days and have been so since then. The last days began, in one sense, at Pentecost. It began there. It was already begun at Pentecost and the last days will continue on until the second coming when our Lord descends from heaven. When He comes again at the second coming. So the church has been living in the last days for 2,000 years. So it's nothing shocking when people say we're in the last days. That's been happening for a long time. You can go back to 1 John chapter 2 now. This is what we call inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. That is to say, the eschaton is here. It has been inaugurated. We're in the last days, but they've yet to be consummated. They've begun, but they're not yet complete. The last days then isn't a reference primarily uh, to like the last calendar. It's not like this is uh, you know, just three weeks left and Jesus comes. It means that this is a, the last stage of human history before Jesus returns. And it could be a long time. It's been 2,000 years already. It could be another 2,000 years. I hope not. I hope Christ comes tomorrow. But at the end of the day, it could be a long time. But we are in the last hour. The last hour is a reference to Messianic times. It's the time of Messiah. Abraham's time wasn't the last hour. David's time wasn't the last hour. Moses' time wasn't the last hour. The prophet's time was not the last hour. The Messiah's time is the last hour. The last hour begins with the coming of Christ. It is the time in between the first and second comings. Also known as the church age, the gospel dispensation, the new covenant era. This is the last hour. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says this, that once at the consummation of the ages, Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice 
of Himself. Jesus was manifested. Jesus came in the flesh. He died for sinners. And He did that at the consummation of the ages. We are, according to 1 Corinthians 10, the people upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are in the last days. That began with the first coming of Christ. John says we're there now. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, he said, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. We're there now, aren't we? We're there now. What are the last days marked by? In 1 Timothy 3, he goes on and says, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. We're there now. We're in the last time, the last days now, and during the difficult times. That's why you see riots. That's why you see fights and murder and so forth because we're in the last time now. The people's love growing cold, people proceeding from bad to worse, people hating God, rejecting Christ. It is the last hour. First Peter 1.20, Peter said that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, right? God predetermined the cross before the world ever began, but He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Christ appeared in the last times, the last hour. That is the end times, the time of Christ. 2 Peter 3.3 describes the end times further for us. Peter says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? We're there. There are mockers who hate Christ, who question Christ. We're there right now. It began 2,000 years ago. So John says we're in the last hour. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means exactly what Peter says it means in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. There Peter said, the end of all things is near. That's what it means. It means that this is the last stage in human history. The next major event in redemptive history is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the last hour. And then he says, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. So he switches here from the singular to the plural. But he begins with the singular. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. There is a final, singular Antichrist to come, and John's readers had heard about that. Where do they hear about the Antichrist? Where do they hear about that? Well, I'm sure John had instructed them about that before. John is living there in Asia Minor at the end of his life, and out of his love for these churches, certainly he had instructed them concerning Antichrist. But it's also possible that they heard this from Jesus. And probably not directly from Jesus, but from the other apostles who recorded the words of Jesus in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 24, we read what is called the Olivet Discourse. Matthew was there. The other apostles were there. And listen to what Jesus said to them in Matthew 24. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So there's going to be false Christ. There's going to be false messiahs. There's going to be antichrist. That's what he's saying. There's going to be antichrist. And then, 
Down in verse 15 of Matthew 24, he mentions the abomination of desolation. And I'm convinced that's the final Antichrist. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But they heard Antichrist was coming. They heard it probably from John, they heard it from Jesus, and they heard it from the other apostles. Now take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Or chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's uh, to the left there. It's Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. He wrote this, or he planted this church on one of his missionary journeys and then followed up with them by writing letters to them. And in this letter here in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul provides us with some more information on this final Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, so that's the context here, the coming of Christ, our being gathered to Christ, what we call the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This is the context that Paul's writing about. So we request you with the coming of our Lord, our gathering together to Him, that you be not, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord, our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's the day of the Lord? It's a day of judgment from God. Day of judgment from God. There are many days of the Lord in the Old Testament, but there is a final day of the Lord that all of those previewed, that all of those were a foretaste of, in which God pours out judgment upon the world. I'm convinced that will include a real time of tribulation, when God pours out cataclysmic judgments upon the earth, and then it culminates in the return of Christ to destroy Antichrist. So he says, let no one, verse 3, let no one deceive you, for it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord will not come. He's saying you're not yet in the day of the Lord. It hasn't come yet. How do you know that? It won't come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Before the day of the Lord, this final cataclysmic day of wrath from God, this final day of judgment, there's going to be a great apostasy. What's an apostasy? It's a falling away. It's a defection. Many are going to fall away from the faith. And then there's going to be the revealing of the man of lawlessness who I think is the head of this great apostasy. There's been, there's been many great apostasies in history, but this is a final apostasy. It's an apostasy led by the man of lawlessness. This man of lawlessness, I think, is the final Antichrist, the man of sin. He's the singular man of lawlessness. And he's going to be a man who, verse 4 says, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. That's the final Antichrist. He demands exclusive worship of himself. He exalts himself. He opposes God. This is the final Antichrist. And then Paul says, verse five, end of verse 5 there, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, right? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's already many antichrists, but there's a final one to come. The mystery of lawlessness has a final expression in this final antichrist. But there's something that was restraining him in Paul's day. 
Paul says, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What's that? Some think that's the Holy Spirit from some rapture, secret rapture. I find that far-fetched. I'm convinced that this is the Roman Empire that was restraining the Antichrist. It was pagan Rome. It was the emperor. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And I think all of this will come together as we get to the end. But I think it was pagan Rome in its current first century empire form that was restraining Antichrist in Paul's day. So Paul says, something's restraining him. But verse 8, Then that lawless one, once that restraint is removed, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, this final man of sin, will be destroyed. He will be brought to an end at the second coming of our Lord. And that's recorded in Revelation chapter 19. But he's going to make it all the way to the end. There's an idea that the Antichrist was fulfilled in 70 AD and that's it. I'm not convinced of that because I think, according to the Scripture, he's destroyed at the, at the second coming by the breath of our Lord's mouth. Then Paul adds at the end, this is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders. Verse 10, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's the Antichrist. Deceiver, opposition to Christ, hater of God, and he's going to be destroyed at the second coming. Now turn to Revelation chapter 13. You all didn't know you were getting a Bible study today. right? This isn't normal. We usually stick where we are, but... This is a topic that uh, I've spent about 30 hours over the last two weeks. Thanks to sickness, I was able to get two weeks on this. And uh, it was a very uh, enjoyable time of study for me. So you have to endure uh, the torture of that. Revelation 13, we all know where that book is. It's the very end of the Bible. This is the book that even unbelievers like to read, right? Revelation 13, starting in verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore... Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. I think that's the final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. By the way, all of this comes from Daniel. We'll look at that passage in a minute, and I'll explain what I think all of that means. But anyway, verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. I think that's a revived Roman Empire, by the way. And you'll see why in a little bit. But the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 42 months is three and a half years. Daniel Talks about a time and times and half a time. Uh, whether that's literal or symbolic, is we'll find out one day. I tend to think it's literal. Verse 6, He opened His mouth, spoke out blasphemies against God, to blaspheme His name and His tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, It was also given to Him to make war with the saints, to overpower them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to Him. He's going to rule the world. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. This is the final Antichrist, I think. This is the beast out of the sea. And the same John who wrote 1 John 2.18, warning about Antichrist to come, is the same one who wrote Revelation 13, warning about this beast out of the sea. Now go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I just want us to kind of consider what the Bible says about this man of lawlessness so we can figure out what exactly 
Scripture wants us to know. Daniel is a prophetic book. It's right after the book of Ezekiel. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel. Usually when you turn to the prophetic books, that's when people give up, right? We'll just listen. We can't find Daniel. But Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. John's stuff in Revelation, a lot of it is taken from the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, and I want us to look starting at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking at my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now stop there. We just read about the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13. What does it mean that these beasts come out of the sea? Verse 17 tells us. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So the four beasts are four kings or kingdoms that will arise on the earth or from the earth. Now back to verse 3 again. Verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. This is a reference to the kingdom that ruled the world in Daniel's day. Babylon. Babylon. So I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind also was given to it. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear. This was the kingdom that arose after Babylon, Medo-Persia. You have these successive empires that Daniel's predicting here. And it was raised up on one side. Three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Verse 6. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, another king, kingdom, like a leopard. This is the kingdom of Greece, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After Alexander the Great died, guess what happened? His kingdom was divided into four generals. And Daniel predicts this with absolute precision. It's unbelievable. Then you go to verse 7. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. This beast is identified by almost all scholars as the Roman Empire. That was the the empire that came next. You have these four successive empires. You have Babylon, you have Medo-Persia, you have Greece, and then you have Rome. So it's a fourth beast who Daniel describes as dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boast. Now you get all of that, right? You know every bit of that means, don't you? Of course not. We're confused, right? It's okay. So was Daniel. And the good news is, because Daniel was confused, we get an interpretation. In verses 17 on, we get an interpretation. Look at verse 19. 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which again is Rome, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, 
and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, again, that's Rome, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. Okay, so you have in Rome, ten kings are going to arise, then there's going to be an eleventh king, a little horn, that comes up after them in Rome. And I think that's the Antichrist. And he will be different from the previous ones. So the eleventh king is different than the other ten. And he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand again for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. So you can go back to 1 John 2 now. What does all that mean? What does all that mean? You're going to have a ruler from Rome, different than all the rest. He's going to persecute the church of God. He's going to change the law. He's going to reign for three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. That's the final Antichrist. Verse 24 said that he's different than the other king. Why? I think he's different than the other kings because the other kings were primarily civil rulers, whereas this king, the Antichrist, is going to be a religious and ecclesiastical ruler. He's going to be a ruler in the church. And I'll explain why that's so significant in just a moment. So what do we know about the final Antichrist? He comes from Rome, according to the Scripture. He comes from Rome. He's a ruler unlike the rest. He's the head of a great apostasy. The height of his reign is three and a half years. He opposes God, exalts himself above God, and is destroyed by Christ at the second coming. Now, in light of all of that, who is this final Antichrist. Some of you probably already know what I'm going. I'm convinced that it's the Pope of Rome. I think the Antichrist is the Pope of Rome. Think about it. According to Scripture, he's going to be the head of a revived Roman Empire. That is exactly what the papacy is, isn't it? The empire falls in 476 AD and then is revived through the papacy, through papal authority. He's a ruler unlike all the rest because the other kings were civil. This one is an ecclesiastical ruler who sits in the temple in the very church of God and exalts himself above God. Who could this be other than the Pope of Rome? I'm convinced that it's the Pope. By the way, if you don't think that the Pope does that, that he exalts himself above God, just read their own stuff. Read their own stuff. He was restrained in Paul's day, by the way, right? So there was something keeping him from being revealed. I think it was the Roman Empire. There's no way the Pope could rise to ascendancy without the Roman Empire in its present form being removed, taken out of the way. Once that happened, Antichrist was revealed. And now, we can know who he is. He's been revealed. So he claims to be God. The Pope, according to Roman Catholic dogma, is the vicar of Christ. The vicar of Christ. He's the representative of Christ. One pope went as far as to say, he's not just the representative of Christ, but he is Jesus Christ on the earth. They claim that the pope is the head of the church. What utter blasphemy. This isn't just a a different denomination. You need to realize that the papacy is not within Christ's church. He's the Antichrist. This is Antichrist's church. Listen to what their own catechism says. 
This is from the Roman Catholic Catechism. The Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, this is the Pope, and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. The Pope has all power over the church. He's the head of the church, they say. Pope Nicholas said of himself, I am in all and above all, so that God Himself and I, the vicar of God, have both one consistory, and I am able to do almost all that God can do. Wherefore, if those things that I do be said not to be done of man, but of God, what do you make of me but God? <coughs> Exalting Himself in the temple above God. This is a post. He seeks to supplant Christ, to substitute Christ, to take the place of Christ. He is anti-Christ. Let me read one more passage. If this hasn't convinced you already, let me read one more passage that perhaps will do the trick. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read from Daniel 11, verses 36 and 37, which once again I think speaks of the Antichrist. Then the king will do as he pleases. That's the Antichrist. Does whatever he pleases. Right? Remember what I read from the Catechism? The Pope has full, supreme, universal power over the whole church, a power he can exercise unhindered. Does whatever he wants. He's the rule maker around here. So the king will do whatever he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. No one's spoken more monstrous and blasphemous things than the Pope. He is the ultimate blasphemer. So he'll speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Verse 37, here's where it gets really interesting. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. A Roman ruler who doesn't worship the pagan gods. The Pope, he got rid of the pagan gods. Now he changed, exchanged them for his own idols, to be sure, but he got rid of the pagan traditional pantheon of gods. So he's going to show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Then it says, He will show no regard for the gods of His fathers or for the desire of women. The Pope can't be married. Of course, there have been Popes who have been, but the ordinary rule is the Pope can't be married. He shows no desire for women. Nor will He show regard for any other god, for He will magnify Himself above them all. That's the Pope. I'm convinced the Pope is the Antichrist. What I mean by that is not that Pope Francis is the Antichrist in exclusion of the rest, but that the office of Pope is the Antichrist. That's what I think the Scripture had in mind. That the office of Pope is the Antichrist. Everyone who occupies that office is the Antichrist, is the man of lawlessness. Now, I'm not dogmatic on this. I, in fact, I didn't even believe that until this week. Reading the Scripture convinced me. But I could be wrong. There are other views. The Pope is at least an Antichrist for sure. I'm convinced he's the Antichrist. But there are other views concerning the Antichrist. Let me give you at least four of them. There is the Preterist view, and not all Preterists hold this view, but some think that the Antichrist was fulfilled in 70 AD. 70 AD, at the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple. And while clearly Scripture has much to say about that, including the Olivet Discourse, I don't think that can be the case, and here's why. The two most likely candidates in 70 A.D. to fulfill that office of Antichrist would have been uh, Vespasian, who was the Roman emperor in 70 A.D., or it would have been his son Titus, who was the general that led the army to destroy the temple in 70 A.D. and was later the emperor in 79 to 81. The problem is none of those two men fit the description. 
Both of those men showed regard for the gods of their fathers. They were pagans who worshipped the Roman gods. Both of those men were married. And both of those men died by natural causes. That can hardly be said that they died at the appearance of His coming by the breath of His mouth. They died like most men, by natural causes. So I don't think the preterist view in that perspective holds any water. A second view is, uh, is that there's no final Antichrist. There's just many coming Antichrist. There's no final Antichrist. And while obviously I agree that there are many Antichrists, I think the Scripture's clear that there's this man of lawlessness who's destroyed at the second coming, who's a ruler from Rome, etc., etc., etc. The third view is the traditional Reformed view. That's the view I just laid out for you, that the Pope is the Antichrist. Many of the Reformers believe this, and some of the patristic early church fathers even believe this. In fact, uh, Rome was happy about the Preterist view because they, that took weight off them. They said, yeah, see, we're not, that was all fulfilled in 70 AD. The Pope's not the Antichrist. They were happy to take that perspective. But I think Scripture's clear there is a final Antichrist, and I think the Pope's it. The fourth view is the popular dispensational view today that there's going to be a final world ruler at the end who's the Antichrist. I think you kind of have a combination of the last two. You have the Antichrist is the papacy, is the Pope, but I think there will be a final expression of that Antichrist in the last Pope who's going to reign specifically for three and a half years and be destroyed by the breath of Christ's mouth at the second coming. But all of that has led me to think that the office of Pope is the Antichrist. What do they say? If the shoe fits, wear it. I think it fits in this case. Shoe fits, wear it. However, John's primary focus back here in 1 John 2 is not really over the Antichrist to come, but over the many Antichrists that have already appeared. The many that are already around us. He says, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, right now, the Greek could read, many Antichrists, antichristoi, plural, have appeared. There are many of them. There were many in John's day, there are many in our day, and there will continue to be many until Christ comes and wipes out the anti-Christian religion altogether, the religion of Satan himself. An anti-Christ is anyone opposed to Christ, anyone against Christ, anyone in opposition to Him. But specifically, the false teachers who seek to deceive God's people and distort the truth about Jesus. We're going to look at that more next time. But John wants us to see that the timing of Antichrist is right now. There are already many of them now, at this moment, at this present hour, in this last days, Antichrist already exists. And John says, from this, we know that it is the last hour. The proliferation of Antichrist demonstrates that we are right now in the end times, the last hour. So what does John want us to know about Antichrist? I think he wants us to know there's a final one to come, but that there are many already in existence that we need to be on the lookout for. And as we'll see next week, they don't, they're not only outside the church, they're not only in the world, but many of them even start off in the church. So not only do we have to be on the lookout for heretical teachers outside the church, but even more so in the church. Those who would secretly introduce destructive heresies and deny our only Master and Lord in the church of God. That's the most dangerous, isn't it? When atheists come, when pagans come, when Muslims come, when Hindus come, when Buddhists come, we're quick to say, you're wrong. Jesus is the only way. But then the Christological heretics come into the church and say, yeah, Jesus is the only way. Jesus, the Michael the Archangel. 
right? Oh no, Jesus, the spirit brother of Satan. Jesus, uh, the one who's not head of the church because he lets the Pope be head of the church. The false Jesuses in our culture. So John wants us to be on the lookout. But how do we identify them? How do we know who they are? How do we overcome them? That's where John's going to get into next week in verses 19 through 23. But for now, brothers and sisters, may we be on the lookout for these antichrists that we might hold fast to the truth and avoid their deception for our good and God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at Your Word. It's amazing that Daniel, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, could predict such transcendent things. That there was going to be all of these empires. That's transcendent knowledge. No, no human being can know that without it being revealed by God. The fact that uh, Antichrist already exists. There's many of them all around us. In one sense, there's been opposition to God ever since the beginning in the garden. But now there's not only opposition to God, but opposition to His Christ, as Psalm 2 says. Gather together against the Lord and His anointed. There's Antichrist. And we want to know who they are so that we can protect ourselves and others, so we can be on the lookout, so we can preserve and persevere in the truth and not be deceived by error. And we're thankful that Your Word gives us all we need for life and godliness. All we need to know the truth and to detect error. And for that we're thankful. Help us, Father, to live our lives with a relentless devotion to the truth. May we never sacrifice the truth for supposed unity, because any unity at the expense of the truth is no real unity at all. We love the truth. We love one another in the truth. The truth about God, about Christ, about the Gospel is so central that we hold fast to that. And we're thankful that Christ has given His life for us, delivered us from this age, delivered us from this deception, that in Him we're overcomers, and now we look forward to the final expression of that victory in our glorified body, in a new heaven and a new earth, where only righteousness dwells. So we pray with all the saints. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Amen.